It's good to see you here. Uh, thanks for being here. I'm sorry, I'm losing. I don't have anything to say. <laughs> you all look great. Well, you know, maybe we should tell people we're deep into Lent. Yeah, we are. We are deep the, into Lent. The fifth uh, Sunday. Next Sunday is Palm Sunday. And uh, also, I'm Richard. I'm back again. I'm going to give it another try. Last week, if you were here. I was the designated preacher and without a voice, but my son read my sermon for me, so that was moving. You can still hear it a little bit, but I think I'm in good enough voice to get through it, so here I am again and happy to be here. Yeah, we're so grateful to Richard to fill in. I, my mom died last week and I was doing the service. I didn't be expected to be gone for Sunday, but Richard so graciously offered to preach for me, and Russell had already arranged for him to preach this week, so... He's really taking on a lot, and we are grateful for that. I want to say hi to the band. Who's, who's that person? Yeah, we're super excited to have Audrey with us today, playing guitar and singing. I'm super excited about that, too. Thanks for being here. Thanks and, for having me. And Jonah's been away for a couple weeks, and it's glad to have him back as well. Glad you're here, Jonah. Yeah. <laughs> Next week, uh, n- next week, I'll be gone, and uh, Quill and Roe will be filling in again as a uh, music leader. So that's what's going on over here. And Back to you guys. If you're listening on the podcast, so glad you're there. Or if you're watching the live stream, hello to you. And, you know, we don't have a written program anymore, but you can always follow along in the hymnal here. You can also go to houseofmercy.org, and the program is online as well. So if you feel lost, there's a way to... Feel found, I guess. Um, Easter's coming up, but first there'll be Stations of the Cross. Uh, the theme this year for Stations of the Cross is fight the power. What we were thinking about that is um, thinking about the, the different impulses to fight the power that we've seen. After the murder of George Floyd, uh, there was an uprising. That was definitely, you know, what are we going to do? And then there was the January 6th uprising, and we were sort of asking the artists to sort of reflect on both those things. Is there any common impulse in then? How do those juxtapose with, with each other and with the Stations of the Cross? So kind of a lot, but it seemed like a good theme for Stations of the Cross. I, I don't think we have all those spoken for yet, so if anybody's interested in doing a piece for Stations of the Cross, it will be visual art. Um, talk to me, or you can email Russell and... Uh, I think he'll be home sometime soon. I hope. <laughs> and then Easter. Easter. Yep. Yeah, I'm super excited about Easter. The Brass Messengers are coming to play. It's always like, you know, a great celebration, Feast of the Revolution, good music. So but we have those things coming up. Do you have anything else? I don't think so. If nobody else has anything, I think we can say this is the House of Mercy and welcome to it. Please join me in the prayer of invocation. 
God of mercy, see us and hear us as we stumble around looking for you. Or peace and love and meaning, justice and compassion. We don't always know where to look. We aren't always that great at seeing. Sometimes we get weary and frustrated. So how about come and find us and breathe some truth into our ears. Fill us with loving kindness. Amen. The peace of Christ be with you. Let's share a sign of peace. I invite you to join me now in the prayers of community. I'll end each prayer petition with God and your mercy, and I invite you to respond, hear our prayer. Let's pray. God of mercy, you never cease creating life, finding a way out of no way, pulling life out of death, freeing the captives, resurrecting. Help us trust this, and may the trusting help us not to be paralyzed, not to give up in the face of all that can sometimes feel a bit hopeless, all the places where war rages and powerful men choose violence and are over and over and over again eager to sacrifice people to solidify power. Help us remember and live and recognize and practice the way you reveal to us that is so different from this, giving up power for love, choosing nonviolence, raising up life from the rubble. We pray for some glimmer of hope for those suffering violence. God, in your mercy. God of mercy, we are grateful for the people in this world who give much of their lives to helping children and young people learn about math and science and history and literature and so many things that make democracy and equity and curiosity and invention possible. We pray that teachers might be lauded with respect, showered with gratitude, instead of threatened or being pushed to further stages of stress. We pray that we might be given, that they might be given strength, liveliness, that they will not be too exhausted. exhausted. We pray that they will find some good resolutions and negotiations. And we pray that students and teachers will be given at least a little of what they need to thrive. God, in your mercy. God who sees, we pray that you will see those whose hearts are broken and cover them in tenderness. Search out those who are suffering from physical, mental, and spiritual dis-ease and give them something they need. Help Maria Bianchi, Robert Blue, Henry and the Burkus Friesen family. See our pain and joy and fear and surround us in love. God in your mercy. God of mercy, hear us now as we bring to you our prayers and confessions as we pause for silence.
The Bible reading today is from Genesis chapter 16, verses 1 through 14. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, bore him no child, no children. She had an Egyptian slave girl whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, you see that the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my slave girl. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the, the Egyptian, her slave girl, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as a, as a wife. He went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my slave girl to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Your slave girl is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she ran away from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave girl of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am running away from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will so greatly multiply your offspring that they cannot be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Now you have conceived and shall bear a son. You shall call him Ishmael. For the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He shall be a wild ass of a man, with his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall live at odds with all his kin. So she named the, so she named the Lord. So she named the Lord who spoke to her. You are Elroy, for she said, Have I really seen God and remained alive after seeing him? Therefore, the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. Good evening. This is... Uh my second attempt in as many weeks in the pulpit here. Last Sunday, if you were here, um, you recall I was supposed to preach, but I was so out of voice, I couldn't do it. I didn't have COVID, but a cold and laryngitis. But my son, Nick, read my sermon for me. 
And I can't tell you what a blessing that was to hear Nick read my words, and I thought he did a nice job too. So you never know how God's purposes could work. So I thought I might introduce myself tonight. I was going to do it last time since I was going to preach twice in a row because not everybody knows me. Even though I've been a member of House of Mercy for 15 years or so, um, when I joined, we were still meeting in Lower Town. Cheryl remembers that. Um, Cheryl read today, did a nice job. And we were meeting at an old Baptist church off 7th Street. It was a few blocks up from the farmer's market. So, you know, House of Mercy was part of the emergent church movement in the 90s. And that was an interesting movement. There were a number of churches back then. And I think that was the last time that there was genuine excitement among liberal Christians that we might have found a way to revive the church, which, of course, has been in steady decline in terms of membership and money anyway for about half a century now. But, you know, great as these churches were, um, they're mostly not around anymore. House of Mercy is one of the few remaining And the Gospels tell us that longevity isn't always a measure of faithfulness. But, you know, in my experience, the House of Mercy has remained faithful to the Gospels' radical message, and for that I'm grateful. So, you know, I found uh, not only with myself but with others that the level of engagement with the House of Mercy ebbs and flows according to life's rhythms, but the depth of connection remains somewhat constant somehow. So I'll find myself away from the church for weeks or months, but then I hit a bump or maybe just a curve And I find myself back in the pews or even up here in the pulpit from time to time. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everything born of the Spirit. That's according to the Apostle John in one of his letters. So tonight, we're retelling the story of Hagar. She's an outsider. She's an Egyptian slave. A person seemingly of no consequence. Like so many stories in the Bible, Hagar's story is one of reversals. And, you know, I love preaching from Genesis because its writers are storytellers. I think we all love stories, especially family stories like this one. But this isn't one of the stories that we're likely to hear at the Thanksgiving dinner table. 
Rather, it's the kind we're likely to hear from the aunt who, after a couple glasses of sherry, delights in revealing the skeletons in the family closet. That kind of a story. In truth, Abraham and Sarah, who are the main characters in this part of the Bible, would rather, I think, that this history had been forgotten. The preferred family story they'd have um, would omit Hagar and her son Ishmael altogether. Just as in earlier times, and here I'm dating myself a little bit, families um, sometimes hid the stories about a child born out of wedlock and given up for adoption. So the story Abraham and Sarah would want to tell, I think, is that God had promised them a son, and after waiting patiently for it to happen, their son was finally born and all was joyful. This part of the story that we're focusing on, where Sarah and Abraham come to doubt God's promise of a son and decide to take matters into their own hands leading to the birth of another son to a different mother who they evicted from the family home that happens eventually well they probably wish that part of the story hadn't been told and recorded after all Abraham is known as the father of no fewer than three faiths, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And Sarah is the founding mother of what became the Jewish faith. Hagar, on the other hand, is a mere slave. What becomes amazing as the story progresses is that Hagar is transformed from a slave to the mother of a great nation in her own right. The Arab and Bedouin tribes claim Hagar as their ancestor. And African-American Christians look to Hagar, an Egyptian of dark complexion, as a symbol of their suffering, but also as a source of inspiration. So as the curtain rises, um, Hagar has no agency. Sarah decides to use Hagar to solve a crisis she and Abraham are facing, that of childlessness, which was the most unfortunate of all conditions in the ancient Middle East, but particularly so to Abraham and Sarah, because it causes them to doubt God. You see, previously God had told them that their descendants would be as numerous as the grains of sand or as the stars in the sky, But here we are, many years later, and now burdened with great age, they have no son, no heir.
Where's the promise? So, Sarah decides to take matters into her own hands to acquire a male heir through her slave woman. She offers up Hagar as a sexual partner to Abraham. Now, this was a permitted practice in the ancient Middle East. The, 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 the idea was that because the mistress owns her female slave, any child born of a sexual union between her slave and her husband belongs to the mistress. A child produced in this manner was said to have been born on the wife's knees. The slave woman can't say no. She has no agency. She's a possession. Now a sexual possession. Arguably the victim of rape. I, I would say probably certainly. I don't see how consent would be possible. And some of you may have read uh, Margaret Atwood's uh, science fiction novel, The Handmaid's Tale, or seen the Netflix series. That's based on this. That horror story is right out of the Bible, sort of projected into modern culture. So Abraham acquiesces to Sarah's plan. And as a result, Hagar becomes pregnant with Abraham's son. So the narrator tells us that Hagar takes pride in her pregnancy and comes to regard Sarah with contempt. A better translation of the Hebrew might be that Sarah became slight in Hagar's eyes. That's more literal. <clears throat> so, of course, this story isn't told from Hagar's perspective. So we don't really know how she felt. But we can't imagine that after a life of servitude, Hagar might well have felt some pride in her pregnancy with Abraham, the patriarch. But even though Hagar's pregnancy is the outcome of Sarah's own plan. Sarah faults Abraham, appealing to God for judgment because of Hagar's attitude. Abraham, who is a very passive figure in these stories, you might have noticed, turns Hagar back to Sarah, who, the narrator tells us, dealt harshly with Hagar. The Bible doesn't give any further detail. Did Sarah beat Hagar, verbally humiliate her? Well, whatever form this unjust punishment took, Hagar was forced to endure it during the vulnerability of pregnancy. Imagine that. But at this point, at this point, the story takes a surprising turn. It shifts from Sarah's to Hagar's point of view. For the first time, Hagar acts on her own. Hagar defies the condition of her slavery by fleeing to the wilderness. 
And it's interesting to note here, her, her flight foreshadows the Exodus story where the Hebrew people in bondage to the Egyptians flee to the wilderness. But consider the irony in this kind of foreshadowing because in this story, the slave is an Egyptian and her oppressors are the founders of the Jewish faith. Now, while in the, while in the wilderness, um, Hagar encounters the angel of the Lord, the text tells us. And you may have noticed in the story that at times it seems this is a messenger, and at times God. And that's a tradition in the Older Testament. God will assume the form of a messenger or angel. And there's ambiguity in that. You know, it was thought that to, as Hagar says, to actually see God face to face could be fatal. Because the awe, the majesty, the power of the divine was too great. So this is a form God assumes. And the angel addresses Hagar directly and by name. Previously, you know, she'd only been, if you notice, the passive object of other people's conversation and plans. And the angel has two messages for Hagar. First, he commands her, return to your mistress and submit to her. Surely this was not a welcome command. No mercy, it would seem. Only divine reinforcement of Hagar's slave status. According to Old Testament scholar Phyllis Tribble, this command renders Hagar's story a text of terror. Yet, unexpectedly, the angel also promises Hagar that she will give birth to a son and will be the, the mother of multitudes. This is, this is quite significant. It's really the very same promise that was given to Abraham himself. Hagar is the only woman in the Bible to receive such a promise. And the name that the, the angel or God speaks to her as the name for her son, Ishmael, that means God hears. God hears. Which explains why the angel says, you shall call him Ishmael, for the Lord has given heed to your affliction. Again, we hear echoes of God's words to Moses as God prepares to lead the Hebrew people out of bondage in Egypt. The Exodus text says, Then the Lord said, I have seen the misery of my people. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them. That Hagar, the Egyptian slave woman, 
commands this level of attention from God would have sent shockwaves through the ancient world, I suspect, when the story was told. It shows that God's promises aren't limited to one place, to one time, or even to one people. But you know, the most interesting part of this story, in a way, is how Hagar responds to this message. She responds by naming the God she encounters. Now keep in mind, Hagar is not a Jew or a Hebrew person. So this is not the God of her people. So this is a new encounter for her. New. And she gives a name to this God. Which is something that, you know, the power to name God is attributed to nobody else in the entire Bible. Not to Adam. To Noah. Not to Abraham. Jacob. Moses. Not even really to Jesus. I mean, in all other cases... God identifies God's self by, usually by the name Yahweh, which means I am who I am or I will be who I will be. Whenever you, if you read the Bible and you see where it's written, the Lord and the Lord is in capitals, that's actually the translation of the tribal name of uh, God that the Hebrew people had, Yahweh. That's how this God identifies himself. I guess I can use the male pronoun here. It's usually pretty male when he does it. Um, so that's, the, that, that's usual, that God announces himself. Hagar alone is so bold as to give her own name to God. So she named the Lord who spoke to her. You are Elroy, she says. Now, Elroy is, if you read the Hebrew in the footnotes, it's very rich and ambiguous in translation. Very suggestive. But Elroy means something like, you are a God of seeing. Or it can be translated as the God who is seen. So the God who sees, the God who is seen, or even the God who I see. All of these. So Hagar is proclaiming that this God, this is the God who sees her, who sees her, an Egyptian slave. And that's the identity of this God, as one who sees. We must imagine that when Hagar returns to Abraham and Sarah's house, she has been transformed. She left as a terrified slave. And now she's returning as one who has not only encountered but named God. So this isn't the end of Hagar's story. We haven't even discussed the birth of her son Ishmael. Or the later birth that Sarah has a son, finally, Isaac. Or how Sarah, 
fearing now that Ishmael will be a rival to Isaac, convinces Abraham to evict Hagar and Ishmael. So they have to flee a second time. Or how God intervenes a second time, again in the wilderness, to save the lives of Hagar and Ishmael when they are about to die from thirst and exposure in the desert. So, you know, there's a lot more we could say about Hagar. A lot more is said about her. But, you know, her significance to communities of faith really crosses religious boundaries. And that's not true of many people either, maybe Abraham. So Hagar is revered by Muslims who see her as the mother of their faith because Ishmael is thought to have been the sort of the father of the uh, Arab tribes that later, much later, adopted Islam. But she's also revered by African-American Christians, very much so, who relate to her as an African slave who defied her status, who fled captivity, found freedom for herself and her son, and even named the God she encountered. So even though we haven't told all of Hagar's story and it's still being told today, let's leave it here for now and ask what to make of it, briefly anyway. So here we are in Lent. In Lent. Almost to Palm Sunday. Almost to what's called the Passion. You know, the triumphant entry into Jerusalem and the uh, Last Supper, the anguish, the betrayal, the torturous crucifixion. And then finally the, the resurrection. So here we are in Lent. Traditionally, it's quite a somber season. And it, it's a somber season in what has been so far a somber year. In fact, we've had a number of them. As we face pandemic, economic desperation, I don't need to tell you about that, record deaths we're facing, from overdoses, alcoholism, and suicide, all those are up, you know. And now we've got a war, a potential war, with a nuclear power in Europe. In the face of this, all this, can we find hope in a story like Hagar's? I mean, it's a hopeful story, right? But maybe it seems to us like a fairy tale. Not something that would ever happen in our world. And is it not also foolish to place hope in the Jesus story? The story of a Jewish peasant who lived over 2,000 years ago, who associated with fishermen and lepers and uh, people of no account and who died the shameful and painful death of a political criminal. That's what crucifixion was reserved for, political criminals. 
So last week when Nick read my sermon for me, um, that was based on a quote from the Apostle Paul, who urged us all to be of the mind of Christ. And this is Paul quoting an ancient hymn now. Be of the mind of Christ, who though he was, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. in the form of a slave. Messiah in the form of a slave. In a form like Hagar. In the form of a prostituted woman. An evicted, unemployed and unhoused mother. A woman of marginalized ethnicity and national origin. God in that form, in that form, Understand this, and you'll know why the ancient world was scandalized by Jesus' message, and why that message still scandalizes power today, whenever it's proclaimed honestly. We live in dark times. Every day it seems harder to see anything very clearly. When it grows so dark that we can't see God, will God still see us? You've been listening to the House of Mercy podcast. You can experience all this live every Sunday at 5. Check houseofmercy.org for all the details. House of Mercy is a church in St. Paul. You should come. It's not that bad. <laughs>